Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. I'm Ronnie. I'm one of the pastors here at Gospel Community Church. It's my privilege to bring you uh, God's Word today. I'll try to step back and recognize just all this thing's really big. Um, to everybody watching online at home, we, we miss you, and uh, we're thankful that you're able to watch and participate with us all in spirit. We, um, we've been going through a series called Saints and Society for a while, looking in the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and last week, Rick actually preached a, a sermon on the Lord's Supper. And what we're going to do today is we're going to take a quick pause kind of, on 1 Corinthians and talk about baptism as well, because we thought it would be nice to talk about both ordinances that we practice here at Gospel Community Church, and in light of their relationship to the gospel. So Rick did that last week with the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to be doing that today with baptism, but we're going to come out of 1 Corinthians, and we're actually going to be in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. So I don't, are we still placing Bibles around the room with, no, not with COVID? Okay, uh, hopefully you have a Bible. Um, or your phone, or there, there is a stack of clean Bibles in the back if you need one. If you don't have one at home at all to read yourself personally, that is a gift from Gospel Community Church to you. Take it, read it. It is the inerrant, inspired Word of God. As it was said earlier um, by Brad uh, so well, the whole goal of Gospel Community Church is to make Jesus the hero, the hero. not any one person, um, We hope that everything we do here at Gospel Community Church points to that fact that he is the hero, that there's nothing that we've done to earn our salvation. As a matter of fact, as you'll see, I'll say even later in the sermon, really, we are the villain in this story, and I'll help point that out. There's nothing good in us that God was very gracious in stepping down and entering into humanity and changing who we are. And baptism has a very strong connection to that change and uh, the wrath of God, the grace of God, his saving us. And so we're going to be looking at that. If you're a note taker today, uh, if you're a note taker today's sermon, it's just all about baptism. Uh, this is the, just the ordinance of baptism and its relationship to the gospel. So we'll start by reading the passage and then we'll dive in. 1 Peter three eighteen through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this place that we're able to meet again in person with one another. I pray that you would uh, protect this place, this opportunity for us to come and meet and we pray that you'd be glorified through all that it takes place here, through the, the, the greeters, through the music that's sung, through the sermon, through the kids' ministry, every, the gospel community church groups that meet throughout the week. Everything we pray would lift up and make, you, uh, make much of your name. 
would bring you glory, God. We pray today that as we look at baptism and its relationship to the gospel, that we would see its importance, that we wouldn't see it as something as trivial, as just this thing that Christians do that we don't really understand. I pray that you'd help us gain an understanding, and I pray that it would encourage us in our faith and help grow us in our faith even. We thank you for this ordinance and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and we thank you for your word that we could better understand these things that you've actually stepped into humanity and communicated with us. We pray you speak now, God, to your name alone be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So I'm excited to talk about baptism and its relationship with the gospel, and not just because I'm a nerd. Uh, baptism actually has a lot of significance, theologically speaking. Historically speaking, if you know anything about church history, baptism is a very, very interesting topic. Um, it's practically significant in the life of believers. It's, it's not just something we do as a rote routine or something that uh, every Christian just expected to do, but it actually has practical significance. So there's a lot of good reasons why we should talk about baptism. Um, some people may not understand the practice, though, and that is clear through social media. As a matter of fact, as I was going through and preparing for the sermon, I, I randomly stumbled upon a, a tweet that was shared on Facebook. Maybe it's the providence of God, but it was, uh, the tweet was basically saying this. It was saying that, it was kind of a sarcastic comment, you could say. It was like, baptism is not important except it's, baptism is important except it's not, but if you don't do it right, you need to do it again because it's important except it also isn't. And it was talking about how it's one of the strangest theological positions of Christianity. And so, if it was just one person that shared this view, it'd be like, this is just somebody who wasn't paying attention in church, obviously, and kind of sat there in the pews and never really listened or understood what the, practice, uh, the ordinance of baptism was. However, it was shared a lot, so I can only believe that this is a, a shared experience amongst many people who sit in church pews or maybe were a part of Christian culture but don't really understand the significance of it. And I hope that as we move through this text that nobody would leave here today thinking that about baptism. But I thought it was very interesting and reflective of the culture at large and their view of Christianity because this was, an, to me, an obvious case of special pleading. Because what they were saying in the tweet was essentially that it's, it's kind of almost symbolic, baptism. And because it's symbolic, it has no meaning. And the reason why I would say this is a case of special pleading, an obvious case, is because the very same people that would criticize the, the symbolism in baptism, saying that it's meaningless, are the same people that would praise and even participate in many other forms of symbolism in our culture. Take one very powerful one, the wedding ring. If I were to take this off, does this mean Nicole and I are no longer married? No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, when I put it on, that didn't also therefore mean we were married. But it is, it, it, it's a sign, it's this symbol signifying the, the never-ending commitment we have to one another. And there's many different uh, views on the symbolism behind something like that. But there's symbolism in a lot of different things we do. And one thing I would, uh, don't even get me started on literature. If, if you think symbolism is, is meaningless, you need to read more good stories. You need to read more books. You need to watch more really good movies. Uh, you need to read the Bible again because God is a fan of symbolism. 
And there's many strong examples of symbolism. And as I said before, the same people that would criticize baptism are potentially people who would praise something they would see in, in something like a really good movie. And one example I would give, I feel like I'm always giving movie recommendations, um, but has anybody ever seen Shutter Island, the 2010 film Shutter Island with Leonardo DiCaprio? I see a lot of head nods. Okay, so in that movie, there was, it was a, it's an amazing movie. I really love it. I've seen it multiple times. But there is some very powerful symbolism in that movie. There is this dichotomy between fire and water and its relationship to reality and fiction that the main protagonist kind of struggles with. I don't want to spoil the movie, but uh, you should definitely watch it. And, and that symbolism, whoever directed that movie, whoever wrote that script, they didn't throw that in there for no reason. There was significance. There was important. It added on to the story. It helped make it, uh, it, it brought a whole nother depth to the movie. Um, and I, one thing I wanted to kind of pause and a little um, rabbit trail, I do have to say about my movie recommendations. By the way, I don't, I don't do that to try to make the gospel relevant, but I, I say that to, I, I sometimes give, um, cultural references like movies or something like this to say that if you want to tell a good story, it has to have the truth in it. It has to have an element of truth. If you were trying to write a story and completely separate it from God, which in my opinion would be impossible, your story would be terrible. It would be an awful story. It would be completely devoid of truth. And when people try to tell stories like this, they often fall flat. But symbolism is also meaningful in that um, look at the crowds that came to Jesus in John uh, 6.30. What did they want from Jesus? They said, show us a sign. They wanted some kind of symbol of his authority as Messiah, that this was the one that they had long awaited and expected to come. So before we begin in this passage, baptism is more than symbolic. However, symbolism is not meaningless, as we'll see in this passage, and God has a purpose in using it to tell this great narrative. So starting in verse 18, we see a four, a four, sorry, a four. Anytime you see therefore, that, since, because, for, you know that there was something before it, obviously, as we come into this passage. Then we're kind of jumping into here because we're taking a break from 1 Corinthians. So to provide a little bit of context before jumping into verse 18, prior to this, if you look up in your Bibles and read the section before, Peter is talking about suffering, the suffering of the early church, some of the things they were going through. And then he, he transitions in this first clause in verse 18. And these, these seven words, you could preach an entire sermon on just these seven words. There is great theological and philosophical significance in what Peter here says in this very first clause of verse 18. Speaking about the suffering of the early church, and he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Significant because many people reject Christianity just because of the idea of suffering, or oftentimes it's just their own personal experience of suffering as a, a reason to reject the Christian faith. A couple interesting th things about that. One, as you read all throughout the Bible, God never once tries to get himself off the hook for suffering, for the problem of suffering, the philosophical problem of suffering. God never tries to excuse himself or defend himself from this problem. And even more so, he actually enters into it in Jesus Christ. I talked about this recently, I think in the last sermon I preached, but can you think of a worse way to die than the Roman cross? Was there a more terrible form of execution in all of human history? Not only was Jesus' death not quick and painless, 
it, it was quite the process. There was anxiety that came before it when he was in the garden, before God in prayer. His friends had abandoned him. He was lied about. He had stuff stolen from him. He was obviously tortured before his, his crucifixion. He was publicly shamed. Oftentimes we see depictions of Jesus Christ on the cross with some kind of cloth on, but history tells us that normally with the Roman crucifixion they would have been naked, so he even suffered and endured some form of sexual shame. In almost every way a human being could suffer in this world, Jesus entered into that. For those that have been abandoned by their friends, for those that have been lied to, who have been accused falsely, Jesus was not just a God who was separate and pulled apart from all this stuff, but actually entered into humanity's suffering. And this great suffering, we, we, we deserve death for our rebellion. We've sinned against God. He's been so gracious to us. He gave us life. There's nothing you could have done to earn your existence. Think about it. You couldn't have done anything. So we owe him so much. And yet from the earliest of our days, we are constantly in rebellion against him. But he's been incredibly gracious to us. Um, in coming and being a part of our, our pain and suffering. But in the, in the cross, Jesus was the only innocent man to have ever lived. This was the darkest moment in all of history. I believe this was the darkest moment in all of history. This was the, the, the most unjust situation that ever happened. Jesus was actually an innocent man and suffered far more than he ever should have. And yet in this suffering, in this darkness, God was able to take it and transform it for your good and his glory a thing which he'll be praised for for all of eternity. So even the suffering that Peter is talking about in verses 1 through 17, we know that whatever suffering we endure, it's not to make light of it or not to say that we can't, as Christians, suffer and cry and weep and mourn with one another, but all the suffering is actually purposeful. To say that there isn't a God in control and sovereign over all the suffering would be to say that all suffering is ultimately meaningless. It would be to say your suffering is meaningless. What you're going through has no purpose. But I don't believe that. We don't believe that as Christians. We believe that God has a purpose in everything that happens. That you're not suffering without cause, without reason, and we see that in the cross. That Jesus is actually accomplishing something when he comes and does this. As I said, you could preach a whole sermon on just that first clause. It's amazing. And what's even better, you roll right into the second clause, and those, those five words is another sermon. And as a matter of fact, for those of you going through the gospel leadership cohort, this is kind of a moment to kind of a pay attention because I know you guys are asked this in the, in the leadership cohort, explain the gospel in one sentence. This is it in five words. The righteous for the unrighteous. That's what it is. It's the righteous for the unrighteous. This is great because at the beginning of the sermon, we get to talk about uh, the gospel. You are the unrighteous, but you're standing before God was exchanged with Christ. This is what we see right here in verse 18. What we call the great exchange. Your sin was given and placed onto Jesus and his perfect righteousness was given to you. He took your unrighteousness, your uncleanness, your shame, your sin, all the bad that you've ever done, Jesus took upon himself to give you his perfect life of obedience to the Father so that God now sees you as that perfect son or daughter, having completely fulfilled his commands. And why? that he might bring us to God. Our sin had also separated us from God. Not only had it made us enemies, but it separated us from him, from our creator, the one who made us. And now Jesus has brought us back in as the villains of the story, which hated everything that was good, which hated God, which sought our own way, who left to our own devices would destroy ourselves and the world given the opportunity. God sent his son to change our identity. And this is a significant component of baptism. 
He takes out this heart of stone. He gives us a heart of flesh so that we would be made alive. When water is obviously a sign of life, of birth. Jesus alludes to this in, in, in John. We'll talk about later. But the Christian life is this life of continual transformation. As, this, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Jesus is actually changing us. The baptism that we go into is representative of the new life that we now have in Christ. That we actually abandon the old dead man or woman in exchange for a new life, for an actual life. And this is part of the, the beautiful symbology of baptism. That we've been made alive in the Spirit. And verse, as we move through verse 19 through 20, Peter talks more about uh, knowing the relationship to baptism. I, I will be honest. Verse 19 is one of the most confusing verses in the entire Bible. Martin Luther even said that he's not quite sure what exactly Peter meant in verse 19, and many commentators throughout church, church history have said the exact same thing. But I have good news for you all today because I have something that none of them did. Okay, Google. I'm just kidding. Um, in all honesty, there's about, there's like five views as to what exactly is going on here. Uh, John Piper talks about three of them. I think his view is probably what's actually going on here, that uh, basically Jesus Christ was speaking through the Spirit in Noah in his day to uh, command the people to repent and come into the ark, that saving ark. There's many different views on this. I wouldn't say it's interesting, possibly more clear to the people, the people in Peter's day that he's speaking to, but I would say the significance of this passage for us is actually the disobedience and judgment of God that Peter addresses in verse 20. What's interesting and relevant here is the connection that Peter makes to Noah and the waters as he continues through verse 20. So whoever Christ was, had proclaimed his victory to, they were disobedient at some point, they maybe still are, but there were those who were brought safely through the water. And water is amazing. Uh, it, it's used in cultures all over the world for, to symbolize all different kinds of things. I even mentioned in that movie the beautiful way that they kind of use it to explain the over, overarching themes of that one movie. And, and the Bible uses water in so many ways to express so many ideas and help concrete in them in our minds and make them more clear. I understand what Jesus is talking about in John 3, 5 when he sits down and he talks to Nicodemus about uh, new life, about being born in the Spirit, being born in water, born in the Spirit. Uh, my wife's given birth a couple times. I understand that concept of life. Water is, is symbolic of new life, that new life in Christ as we come up out of the water. Water also represents life. If you know anything about, um, if any's like, anybody's like a survival junkie or likes to go out into the woods and camping and stuff like this, you know that you can go without food for what? Three to four weeks, roughly? But how long can you go without water? It's three to four days. Water, water is obviously representative of life. Our old church, Living Stones, actually used to do, I think it was called the Living Stones Water Challenge, something like that. They did it almost every year. Uh, the end of your giving that Living Stones would do was to help build clean wells in underdeveloped parts of Africa or South America. And so what they would do with the Living Stones Water Challenge was kind, kind of to put themselves into solidarity with people living without clean water. 
And so they would go throughout their day, and I think they were allowed like one gallon of water or something. It might have been a lot less. And so they had to see just how much they used water in their day-to-day activities and how important it was to their lives. I mean, you use water to clean many things. You use it to brush your teeth, use the bathroom. Obviously, you drink it for sustenance, uh, all different kinds of things. As a matter of fact, I would say probably even more than 99% of what's in your bathroom right now and all the products you use, anything from beauty products or um, sanitary products, have water in them. Almost everything, uh, a lot of things in your fridge have water in them. So water is essential. It produces crops. Everything we eat, we, it, it, and even if you look at like uh, NASA looking for life on other planets, what's the one thing they're always looking for? Water. That's the first thing they look for. Before they even begin looking for life, they've got to find water. Water represents life. But what's interesting, and God often does this, he, he, he has many different dichotomies in Scripture, water also represents the judgment of God. Peter's pointed this out in the story of Noah. Noah and his family were brought safely through the waters by entering into the ark. They trusted God. They put their faith in him. They came into the ark. And they escaped the wrath of God that came in the flood. God's judgment on the world. Water is also representative of God's judgment. We see this in the Exodus story too. As the Egyptians chased the Israelites through the waters of the Red Sea that God had separated, God brings down this water on top of the Egyptians in a form of judgment. And this is incredibly significant in baptism. Because as you go down into the waters and come back up, this is representative of the fact that you have now passed through the judgment of God. That you, through your faith in Christ, come under God's judgment and come out the other side unscathed. You pass under the judgment. We see this, uh, Rick talked about this just a couple weeks ago in the Passover story. Were anyone else to come under his judgment without the covering of Christ, just like the waters of the flood in the Red Sea, there would be no coming up out of the water. But we symbolize coming under his wrath and passing through by our faith. And not only this, look at verse 21. Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. The very same faith that saved Noah from the flood and helped the Israelites pass safely through the water of which baptism corresponds with or agrees with, that saves us. That faith that helped them step into the ark or step through the Red Sea, maybe terrified, probably as they're passing through these large walls of water to their left and right, possibly terrified, maybe a very weak faith. But it was the object of their faith that helped them move forward and come out to the other side. It wasn't that they had an amazing faith or this awesome faith or it was all about them and they were here, the hero of the story, but they were putting their trust in someone else and that safely brought, brought them through. One thing I do want to pause right here and say, and it is important when examining this passage, because uh, Rick even said I should mention something about this. There is a, a theological idea called baptismal re- regeneration. And... Um, There are people who believe you need to be baptized in order to be saved. There's actually a very um, popular cult. Some of you may have interacted with them called the Church of Christ or Boston Church of Christ or International Church of Christ, I think is where they kind of started out of. But they, they tell you you need to be baptized or else you are not saved. And they will use a text like this to say, look, it says baptism saves you. And for those going through the leadership cohort again, this is an obvious example of what's called proof texting 
When you pull one text out of the Bible to prove a theological point, you have an ax to grind. And so you're using one thing to say, ah, see, this proves my point. However, there's a lot of problems. One, the Bible's not one verse. It's many verses. And also the verse divisions didn't exist when the the original authors wrote it. If Peter were actually communicating the idea that baptism saves you, he would be arguing with himself in other places of Scripture. He would be arguing against himself in Acts 10 when it came to Cornelius and his being saved and receiving the Holy Spirit before baptism and many other places of Scripture. One of the most obvious examples would be the thief on the cross. For those of you familiar with the story of the thief on the cross, was he baptized? No, obviously. He had no opportunity to be, but yet Jesus tells him today, I promise you will be with me in paradise. Guaranteed, through his faith in Christ. That saved him. And so this is why it would lead to the tweet that I mentioned earlier where somebody is saying, well, why is baptism so important then if it's the faith that saves you? Here's the thing about that. <clears throat> if you were to tell me you, you were going to get into a plane to go to some place like Hawaii, you said, I have faith in this plane. As a matter of fact, I sat there and I watched them do all the diagnostic tests. I have absolute confidence that this plane will get me to Hawaii. I know for a fact it will get me there. I trust it. This is my plan to get to Hawaii. And you never get in the plane. Will you get to Hawaii? No. Faith is not just this passive thing. It will change and transform your life in, where, in ways in which you will act. You will respond. It is the faith in the plane, maybe, that helps you get into it, but actually getting into the plane will get you to why, obviously. If we came across a frozen lake and you said, oh, I measured it, it's good, you, could, you can go out on the lake, it's awesome. Just go, you can skate, it's totally safe. And I'm like, okay, go ahead, get on. And you're like, oh, no, no, no. I'd be like, why aren't you getting on the lake? I thought you said it was fine. You're like, no, I'm okay. I, I'm not going to trust you. I'm not going to trust that you trust what you think you trust about this lake. If you're saying that you're not willing to step out in faith onto the lake, what, what does that say about that faith? It's, it is kind of a meaningless faith to say it's not, you're not going to respond in any way. And when it comes to baptism, the very first, what could be the very first act of obedience to your Lord when he says, be baptized, and you say, no, I'm okay. It's kind of odd. Because the Christian life is about this life that God is transforming us. He's changing us. He's not just leaving us as this old dead man or woman in our old ways and our old sin, but actually changing who we are. And to say, oh, I'm good on baptism, I'll pass on that, is confusing. Because I know, I know from my own experience, testimony, and many young men in the church, that if I told them, hey, you want to get rid of your sin of lust? do this physical thing and it will, it will be destroyed. They would be out there in an instant. If I said, you just have to run 10K, they wouldn't even have time to put on their shoes. They'd be gone. You, oh, run 10, 10K and my sin problem with lust will be gone? They, immediately, they'd be gone. So when it comes to this first act of obedience to say, coming into the water, making a public proclamation of your faith in Christ, if, if you can't step out in that way, how are you going to how, how is your faith going to be active in any other part of your life, in any other sin you're attempting to put to death through the Spirit? It, it, it makes no sense. And, Paul, and Peter, I'm sorry, even communicates this as he goes through the last part of 21. Baptism is not this removal of dirt. It's not what saves you. It's not what makes you clean. Instead, he says it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. 
that you can that you can step out do this thing knowing that you've been saved getting in the water doesn't save you it just become it's not just a removal of dirt that makes you clean for a while but you can walk in a good or pure conscience knowing full well that you have been reconciled to your god that you've demonstrated your faith in this way the faith in god through the resurrection of jesus christ And there was one more thing I was going to say about baptism um, that I was actually thinking about this morning. That, that's another thing that I, I, I didn't write this into my sermon, but I was just kind of thinking about this morning as I was on my way here and, and also wanted to throw it in. Um, water, one more thing. Sorry, I just forgot this later, but I think it's important. In the Old Testament, you see many times God actually tells the Israelites to cleanse things with water or fire. So that's another important sign of baptism. It's also demonstrating that cleanness that God now gives you. If you feel dirty from what you've done or if you feel ashamed of what you've done, uh, if you feel guilty, that is also the purpose of baptism. It's also the water reflecting that cleanness. You now have a clean conscience before God. You, you are made clean. God sees you as that. He really does. Through faith in Christ, he sees you as his perfect son. All the things that you've done that you feel like maybe you shouldn't even be sitting where you're sitting right now, God has changed that about you through your faith in Christ. He really has. I thought that was important before I came here this morning. In closing, baptism is symbolic, yes, but it is also that first public proclamation and act of loyalty to our God, saying, I, I submit to your life. I'm tired of the way that I was running my life. I was running it into the ground. I know that there was nothing I could have done to save myself. When I look at the law of God and I compare my life to it, I know there was something missing. I know that I had been failing it. I don't just believe this as an idea, but I believe it will transform my life and the lives of those around me. Baptism is this reflection of the gospel. It's this public proclamation of the whole story. I mentioned creation, the water, symbolic of life. God created us. The water is representative of God's judgment, the fall, it's also representative of us passing through that judgment and the redemption of the cross. And as we come up, the new life and the restoration that God one day will bring all of this earth and all of his people into, that he will restore the earth back to its original design where he's in fellowship with us without guilt and separation from him. And baptism is reflective of all this stuff. And when you do this ordinance in the church, you are standing in agreement with all of what God has done for you. As you, you, are, you are actively proclaiming what you believe. As one Christian told me the other day, he really pointed it out to me, uh, one thing that he likes about Gospel Community Church is that it's not fake. He said it, it's authentic because that's one thing he was looking for. He doesn't want to be a fake Christian who just comes and goes through the routines and doesn't change and doesn't do self-reflection and examination to see am I walking with God he wants to be an authentic Christian, as he said. He, he, he said, seriously, what would be the point to doing all this stuff? What would be the point? I want it to be an authentic Christianity, and that's one of the reasons why, and I mean, I'll tell you, it was Wally. Wally was the one who said that, and uh, I thought it was a, a great thing to look for in a church and a great thing to hold your leaders accountable to, seriously, uh, myself included. Authenticity. So instead, we're baptized as a response to what Jesus did for us when he 
as in Peter, Peter's words, and I'll, I'll really, really close with this, was resurrected for us, went into heaven, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Amen. Let's pray. God, as we look through this verse or these verses, we see that there are many things in Scripture that can be difficult to understand. But there are many things that you have spelled out plainly for us, and we thank you for, one, preserving your word. But I pray that we would actively engage it, that as we go throughout the week, we would examine it more. I pray that we wouldn't be confused on baptism or have a small view of it, that we would actually see the significance in baptism, what you've done, that our Lord himself was baptized, and that we are following in his example. And I pray that we would have reverence for these ordinances that, you, that you've given the church. And God, I pray that whatever we do, whether it's the Lord's Supper or baptism or serving the poor, helping out in gospel community church, leading gospel community groups, I pray that we would be reminded that all of these things are pointing to how you are the hero and that we wouldn't confuse it and get it mixed up and put ourselves in a wrongful place but give you the rightful glory to your name for all that you've done for us and pray that we'd be reminded of this as we go throughout our week. Amen.